<clears throat> Revelation chapter 11. Um, even though I've titled this message tonight, The Two Witnesses, it, it encompasses so much more than just simply the two witnesses that are rather obscure in this passage. Uh, but what I want to do is I want to read this chapter together, and then we're going to pick it apart. Um, for the sake of our study, I will forewarn you, um, this chapter touches so much of the Bible. I'm not going to drag you through every single cross-reference, but you do need to know that this, this obscure Galilean fisherman, John, uh, displays an overwhelming understanding of the Old Testament just in this chapter. And that being said, I was, I was rejoicing this afternoon in seeing that uh, this, is, this, this Bible, this book, is so clearly the Word of God. This is so clearly God's Word. Uh, so when we read this chapter tonight, I want you to be remembering and reminding yourself that this is the inspired, infallible, inerrant, perfect, living Word of God. Um, so let's read it together. Revelation chapter 11, verse number 1. John says, And there was given me a reed like unto a rod, and the angel stood, saying, Rise, and measure the temple of God, and the altar, and them that worship therein. But the court, which is without the temple, leave out, and measure it not. For it is given unto the Gentiles, and the holy city shall they tread underfoot forty and two months, or forty-two months. And I will give power unto my two witnesses, and they shall prophesy a thousand two hundred and threescore days, clothed in sackcloth. These are the two olive trees and the two candlesticks standing before God of the earth. And if any man will hurt them, fire proceeds out of their mouth and devours their enemies. And if any man will hurt them, he must in this manner be killed. These have power to shut heaven that it rain not in the days of their prophecy and have power over waters to turn them to blood and to smite the earth with all plagues as often as they will. And when they shall have finished their testimony, the beast that ascendeth out of the bottomless pit shall make war against them and shall overcome them and kill them. <clears throat> and their dead bodies shall lie in the street of the great city which spiritually is called Sodom and Egypt, where also our Lord was crucified. And they of the people and kindreds and tongues and nations shall see <clears throat> their dead bodies three days and a half, and shall not suffer their dead bodies to be put in graves. And they that dwell upon the earth shall rejoice over them and make merry, and shall send gifts one to another, because these two prophets tormented them that dwell on the or, uh, dwell on the earth, dwelt on the earth, and after three days and and a half, the spirit of life from God entered into them, and they stood up on their feet, and great fear fell upon them which saw them, and they heard a great voice from heaven saying unto them, Come up hither, and they ascended up to heaven in a cloud, and their enemies beheld them. And the same hour was there a great earthquake, and the tenth part of the city fell. And the earthquake were slain of men seven thousand. And the remnant were affrighted, and gave glory to the God of heaven. The second woe is past, and behold, the third woe comes quickly. Verse 15, And the seventh angel sounded, and there were great voices in heaven, saying, The kingdoms of this world are become the kingdoms of our Lord and of the Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. And the four and twenty elders which sat before God on their seats fell upon their faces and worshiped God, saying, We give thanks, we give thee thanks, O Lord God Almighty, which art and wast and art to come, because thou hast taken to thee thy great power and hast reigned. And the nations were angry, and thy wrath is come, and the time of the dead that they should be judged, and that thou shouldest give reward unto thy servants the prophets, and to the saints and them that fear thy name, small and great, and shouldest destroy them which destroy the earth. And the temple of God was opened in heaven. And there was seen in, this, in his temple the ark of his testament, or the ark of the covenant, 
And there were lighting, lightnings and voices and thunderings and an earthquake and great hail. Quite the chapter. As we've studied this book, it's uh, repeatedly just overwhelming as we see these things. So what I'm going to do, guys, is I want to forewarn you that we are going to go slow through this. No, I don't want to take you painstakingly to every cross-reference, but I do want you to see the overwhelming scope of this chapter. So um, for the sake of our study, I have, I have broken this chapter. I see four points or four headings in this section. The first is in verses 1 and 2. It's simply the temple. The temple. We're going to explore that a little bit. And the second heading we'll find in verses 3 through 6. We will look at and examine the two witnesses. And then in verses 7 through 12, we're going to see the beast introduced. The beast in verses 7 through 12. And finally, in verses 13 through 19, the end of the chapter, we will see the worship. The worship. So if you need me to repeat those, I gladly will. Uh, But heading number one in verses one and two of Revelation chapter 11, the temple. Now this is quite profound. John receives a reed like unto a rod. Uh, In the Jordan River Valley, there would be these these, um, bamboo-like reeds growing long and straight and thin and hollow, and they would be easily used as a measuring rod. More than likely, these are 10 feet long, in excess of 10 feet long. And John is commanded to measure some things, uh, to measure some not only buildings and areas, he's actually commanded to measure the worshipers. Now, what does this mean? In verse number one of Revelation chapter 11, measure the temple in the middle there, measure the temple of God and the altar and them that worship therein. Now, We've read similar passages like this about measuring things, especially the temple. We've read, we've read in the Old Testament. Zechariah refers to measuring the temple. Ezekiel refers to, in Ezekiel chapter 40, refers to measuring the, the uh, future temple that is mentioned there in the midsection of Ezekiel. And then again in Revelation chapter 1, we see more measurements being taken. Uh, this reed is likely 10 feet long. And what John is doing, I want you to picture this. Here goes John. He's holding this reed in his hand, and he's walking up to people. He's measuring people. And it's, and, and, and it's as though John is walking up, and he's going up to one worshiper. You don't measure up. He goes to another one. You don't measure up either. He goes to another Oh, you don't measure up. So right out of the gate here in chapter 11, we see that this worship that is taking place in the rebuilt temple that will be yet future, John is walking through this area and he's saying, your worship is in vain. You don't measure up. Your your worship can never be good enough outside of faith in Christ. Right out of the gate, John is, is commanded, take this reed and measure them. And see if they measure up. Now, I don't know about you, but I've never met a man that was 10 feet tall. And and the, the, the wonderful imagery here is that John is proving you can't measure up to God's divine standard. So many people think that they can measure up through their works, through their actions, through their religious activity. And John is saying you will never measure up. This temple will never measure up. Everything that culminates in our worship, everything that, that, that comes together, the focal point of our worship is the Lord Jesus Christ. He is the one that measures up. It's the righteousness of Christ that we need by faith. So right out of the gate, John is, is opening. We see this, this chapter of a reminder of the need for true worship. This is the reminder of the need for true worship. Now, I mentioned just here in passing that the temple will be rebuilt during the Great Tribulation under the idolatry of the Antichrist. Now, I must preface that this chapter comes with no small uh, dispute 
and, and I will join company with the many theologians and pastors who have endeavored to teach this chapter to their congregations. And, and I will be saying with them that this may be the most difficult chapter in the entire book of Revelation to interpret uh, and to teach. And the reason being is that this chapter has many, many cross-references, I've already said, and there are many people who interpret these things differently. Um, but I believe that the Bible teaches that we will see a yet future temple that is rebuilt. Can someone tell me what is on the Temple Mount at present? And whenever I say that the yet future temple that will be rebuilt, I'm talking about the future temple that will be rebuilt in the tribulation period. Uh, can someone tell me what's on Mount Moriah as we speak right now? The, the Temple Mount, even the Dome of the Rock, the, 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 the Islam Mosque. Yeah, it's a, it's a, it's a Muslim mosque. It's... <laughs> Seated, situated where the, the temple uh, was constructed during the days of Herod and during the time of Jesus. But that temple will be uh, removed and there will be a, a Jewish temple that is rebuilt there under the, cover, the, uh, the contract that will be made with Antichrist at that time. Now I want you to see something else in verse 2. But the court which is without the temple, leave it out and measure it not for, this is very important, it is given unto the Gentiles, and the holy city shall, shall they tread underfoot forty and two months. Can someone tell me what forty and two months equates to in years? It's three and a half years. Okay? Three and a half years. Um, there's also another reference to three and a half years in verse 3 with 1,260 days. That is exactly three and a half years. Now, these are significant numbers in the sense that this is not the only place where these things are mentioned. Uh, they are mentioned in Daniel multiple times. They are mentioned elsewhere in the book of Revelation. These are significant prophetic numbers. And I think it's important for us to realize what John is doing. He is pointing to other prophecy. He's pointing to Zechariah. He's pointing to Daniel. He's pointing to Ezekiel. This is not some obscure thing. And, and I wouldn't necessarily pursue any numbers referenced in Scripture unless they're mentioned elsewhere in the same context as you interpret Scripture with Scripture. That's the very important thing that we cannot lose sight of, is that we want to use Scripture to interpret Scripture. Um, we also see in, in the book of Revelation this, this phrase, and you'll see this again as we study further in the book of Revelation, you're going to see time, times, and a half a time. So there's time, there's times, plural, and a half a time. Again, that's a reference to three and a half years. The reason that this is significant is because, now, now follow along with me because I don't want to, to lose you and I don't want to just spin you out of control here in the, right out of the gate. When we refer to the tribulation period that is yet future, it is a seven-year tribulation period. It is also referred to as Daniel's 70th week. You've probably heard that phrase before. So I want to direct your attention as we begin to Daniel chapter 9. Okay? Keep something here in Revelation chapter 11 and look at Daniel chapter 9. You have Ezekiel, Daniel in the Old Testament. Daniel is a profoundly accurate prophetic book in the Old Testament. Um, there is great detail given by Daniel. And Jesus references Daniel in the New Testament. And it, it, it would be good for us not to uh, just shrug what is mentioned in Daniel because John is constantly referring to Jan Daniel in the book of Revelation. Look at Daniel chapter 9 verse 26. Well, look at verse number 25. I'm sorry, back up to verse 24. Daniel 9 verse 24. Seventy weeks are determined upon thy people and upon the holy city to finish the transgression and to make an end of sins and to make reconciliation for iniquity and to bring in everlasting righteousness and to seal up the vision and prophecy and to anoint the most holy, capital H. Know, therefore, and understand that from the going forth of the commandment to restore and build Jerusalem, Unto the Messiah, the prince, shall be seven 
weeks. And threescore and two weeks. These are weeks of years, also defined in Leviticus. Okay, That phrase, weeks of years, is, is mentioned there. The street shall be built again, and the wall even in troublous times. And after threescore and two weeks shall Messiah be cut off. Quite clear description there, even talking as accurately down to 30 A.D., when Jesus Christ was crucified, is referencing here what Daniel is referencing um, from the rebuilding of the walls of the temple of Jerusalem under Zerubbabel to the time that Messiah would be cut off is pinpoint accurate with these weeks of years. But the, the emphasis that I want to point to here is in the middle of verse number 26. And the people and the prince, lowercase p, that shall come shall destroy the city and the sanctuary and the end thereof shall be with the flood, and unto the end of the war desolations are determined, and he shall confirm the covenant with many for one week. That's a week of years. That's seven years. <clears throat> and in the midst of the week, he shall cause the sacrifice and the oblation to cease. And for the overspreading of abominations, he shall make it desolate even until the consummation, and that determined shall be poured upon the desolate. This verse 27 is referring to the future breaking of the covenant of Antichrist in the middle of the tribulation period, whereby bringing us into the context of what we see in Revelation chapter 11. I had to take you here to Daniel chapter 9 so that we understand what John is talking about in Revelation chapter 11. Because then cue these two witnesses. John is measuring this rebuilt temple. He's measuring the worshipers. He's measuring the temple itself. It does not measure up. <clears throat> As you're going back to Revelation chapter 11, I want to draw your attention to Luke 21. After the Antichrist will break his covenant with the Jewish people uh, after three and a half years, Jesus says in Luke 21 verse 24, They shall fall by the edge of the sword and shall be led away captive into all nations, and Jerusalem shall be trodden down by the Gentiles until the times of the Gentiles be fulfilled. Now, the reason that this is important is because when the times of the Gentiles be fulfilled, as, re as referenced in Revelation chapter 11, that they will be trodden under the Gentiles in verse 2, under the feet of the Gentiles, is because the second that the, the time of the Gentiles is fulfilled, Jesus Christ is coming back. That's when the time of the Gentiles is fulfilled, Jesus is going to return. Has Jesus returned yet? No. He has not returned yet. And we have, to we have to keep that in mind as we are seeking to interpret these passages of Scripture that are yet prophetic or these, these prophecy passages. Now, uh, the second that the time of the Gentiles ends, the second coming of Christ, which has not happened yet, uh, Christ will return at the conclusion of the time of the Gentiles. This leads us to verse number three. Who, the big question is, and probably what most unbelievers know of, in the book of Revelation are two things. One, they always reference the 144,000, and then they look at the two witnesses and they try to make something fit their uh, wacky ideas with regard to what these two things mean. So in verse number three of Revelation chapter 11, we find that I will give power unto my two witnesses and they shall prophesy for 1260 days or three and a half years. There's been much speculation about this. Uh, was this the first three and a half years of the seven-year tribulation period mentioned in Daniel, or was this the second uh, three and a half years that is mentioned as the great tribulation? I interpret this passage to mean that these 1260 days are referring to the, the three and a half years of the great tribulation, the second half of the seven-year tribulation period. Um, and I'll show you why here in a, here in a moment as we uh, bring this chapter further to a conclusion. But... Um, we see that in verse number three, and they shall prophesy for these amount of years and they will be clothed in sackcloth. In verse four, these are the two olive trees and the two candlesticks standing before the God of the earth. What John's doing here is he's pointing back to Zechariah chapter four. And I just want to pose a question to you. Now, we're not going to Zechariah chapter four, but how does a nobody fisherman from Galilee write like this? We're, we're not, this is, this is not a scholar. 
This is not a rabbi. This is a fisherman. And he is hammering the drum of the Old Testament. And he's been doing this the whole time. The, the, the amount of cross-references that John employs in the book of Revelation is overwhelming. This is an inspired book. This is the word of God. I, I mean, th- this, is, this is remarkable what John is doing. He's, he's in verse 4, he's pointing back to Zechariah chapter 4. This, this reference to the two olive trees is, is a reference to the Holy Spirit fueling the work of these prophets the two candlesticks standing. John, John is, is, in a sense, giving a commentary for Zechariah chapter 4 in Revelation 11.4. And if verse 5, and if any man will hurt them, fire proceeds out of their mouth and devours their enemies. And if any man will hurt them, he must in this manner be killed. Now, <clears throat> before we venture any further, these guys uh, have obviously been given some miraculous uh, judgment power. This is this is this is uh, power that only comes from God, and it is a it is a direct sign of God's judgment upon this this wicked, uh, perverse situation that is going on at the end of the tribulation period. Now let's get down to the nitty gritty. Uh, some believe that these two witnesses are Israel and the Church. Some will label these two witnesses to be Israel and the word of God. And, and the list almost goes on and on and on about what these two witnesses are. Now, I believe, and, you know, I, I, this is, I can't be dogmatic about this, but I believe that the text gives us the information to interpret these, these two individuals who are literally people. They are two men. Um, the reason we deduce that is because they die and their bodies lay in the street for three and a half days. So this is not something figurative or... Um, symbolic. These are two men. And I believe that this is referring to Moses and Elijah. Now my, my mentor who uh, taught on this passage of scripture believed that this was Enoch and Elijah. I do not think that this is Enoch. Um, I believe that this is referring to Moses. But again, uh, you know, when we get to heaven, you can say, hey, you were wrong. Um, and it was not Moses and, and Elijah. But uh, these witnesses are given power to display the judgment of God, fire from their mouths. They, they are able to withhold the rain. They are able to turn water into blood, and, and those should instantly cue your mind back again to the Old Testament. Who, who were the only two prophets that were able to withhold rain from the sky and turn waters to blood? Moses and Elijah. Uh, Elijah called down fire from heaven. Moses uh, called down fire from heaven. Uh, by the power of God. Uh, Malachi, verse, Malachi chapter 4, verse 5 says, Elijah will come, or the spirit of Elijah will come, uh, before the coming of the great and dreadful day of the Lord. Now, now that verse should ring true to your thinking as you think of John the Baptist. John the Baptist, Jesus said, came in the spirit of Elijah. Um, and yet there is a future element to this because even Malachi refers to the great and dreadful day of the Lord. Elijah brought down drought for, would you be amazed at this? How long did Elijah, when Elijah was prophesying against the prophets of Baal during Ahab's reign, how long did it not rain upon the earth? James says in James chapter 5, verse 17, that Elijah uh, kept the drought for three and a half years. It's kind of remarkable that, that the, the drought lasted for three and a half years. You can find that in uh, the book of Kings. Then Moses is the one who turns the waters of Egypt into blood, Exodus chapter 7. Now I would like you to turn to the Mount of Transfiguration in Matthew chapter 16. Because again, this is another reason why I believe that this is referring to Moses and Elijah. Um, is because who Jesus is seen with at the Mount of Transfiguration. Go to Matthew chapter 16, verse number 28. And you'll say, well, why are you straddling the two chapters here? Because in each one of the Synoptic Gospels, you find that these events are mentioned in succession. If you look at Matthew chapter 16, 
In verse number 28, Jesus says, Verily, 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 I say unto you, there be some standing here which shall not taste of death till they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. Now, now many will take that passage and say, look, now this is the time. Jesus fulfilled these events in 70 AD. They will take uh, chapter 16, verse 28, and they'll begin their preterist view of the book of Revelation. But in each one of Matthew, Mark, and Luke, the Mount of Transfiguration is mentioned immediately next. In other words, as Matthew records this, as Mark records this, as Luke records this, we read in verse 28 that, Verily I say unto you, there, there be some standing here which shall not taste death till they see the Son of Man coming in his royal splendor. Does anybody have a translation that actually translates kingdom royal splendor? Nobody? Okay. What is it? Son of man coming into his kingdom. Kingdom. Uh, I have a maybe your maybe your study Bible doesn't say this, but there's a side note here next to kingdom that refers to royal splendor. And then immediately following, look at chapter 17, verse 1. And after six days, that is recorded in each of the gospels except for Luke, who says eight days. He includes both days at the end. There's really no dispute there. It's not a uh, it's not some sort of problem within the recording of the Gospels or anything like that. But this, these events happen in, 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 immediately after one another. So Jesus speaks, verse 28, and then after six days, Jesus takes Peter, James, and John, his brother, and brings them up into a high mountain apart and was transfigured before them. And his face did shine as the sun and his raiment as was white as a light, as the light. And behold, there appeared unto, him, unto them Moses and Elijah talking with him. Now, the big dispute that people have with Moses being one of these two witnesses is that Moses died. And as Hebrews chapter 9 verse 27 says, that it is appointed unto man once to die and after this the judgment. So everybody says, look, it can't be Moses because Moses died. Well, Jude 9 says that uh, Michael the archangel wrestled with Satan over the body of Moses and Moses' body was never recovered. Um, but Elijah, what about Elijah? How did Elijah... Chariot of, chariot of fire. He was taken up to heaven in a chariot of fire. What other man did not die but walked with God? Enoch. 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 So there, there's the argument why some people believe that, well, Enoch and Elijah didn't die, therefore they're the two witnesses. Um, but those things can be argued over until we're blue in the face. And again, my uh, the pastor who led me to the Lord, he believed that this was Enoch and Elijah. I think that it's Moses, given the text of Revelation chapter 11. Moses' body was never recovered. Elijah was carried into heaven by a chariot of fire. Uh, the Enoch argument is rather interesting um, because for the sake that Moses did die, and this would mean that Moses would have to die twice. Um, now, I would give you a third view of this, and I think that this is probably, I would venture to say, best. Um, instead of placing dogmatic names to these two witnesses, I think we leave them as exactly where God has said them to be. They are two witnesses, and we are meant not to know the identity at this time. They are deliberately obscure. And if God is happy with that, I am happy with that. May we not try to change these things or manipulate the text to fit what we want it to mean. The identity of these two witnesses in Revelation chapter 11 is not the point of the passage. It's not the point. And you may ask yourself, then what is the point? Uh, what is the point of chapter 11 in Revelation chapter 11? Um, one thing we see, and I'm going back there now to Revelation chapter 11, because guys, it's going to heat up very fast. It's, it's going to move very quickly once we break through verse 6, okay? So uh, back to Revelation chapter 11. These witnesses have power to shut heaven and that it rains not just like Elijah in the days of their prophecy and, the, uh, and have power over waters to turn them into blood, verse six, and to smite the earth with all plagues as often as they will. So that in a sense, these two witnesses have been given the same prophetic power as Moses and Elijah is what we can rest in and we can uh, walk away from that. But the point of this passage is to see that despite the three and a half year preaching tour of these two powerful witnesses, the hard-hearted evil of the world still did not turn to Christ. They still sought to kill these two gospel messengers. 
they still sought to run from God in his great wickedness, in their great wickedness. They, they still did not receive the message. After three and a half years of this blistering preaching, they still hated the gospel. They still hated the word. Notice, dear ones, John is walking around in Jerusalem on the Temple Mount and he's measuring these worshipers. These are religious people that killed them. These two witnesses were killed by religious people. And, and it, we, would be good, we would be good to remind ourselves of that. Uh, that. The time in which we live, when somebody claims to be faithful or that I have my faith, um, those are the same kind of people that would turn around and kill you if they had the opportunity because you preach the true gospel. Uh, this, this, is, uh, this is a reminder to us that it was religious people who sought to kill the preacher, sought to kill the preachers. God deliberately obscures their identity, and we're happy with this. Um, Christians are, as one pastor said, Christians are immortal until they complete God's purpose. This leads us to the beast. The beast in verse 7. And when they shall have finished, any questions up until this point? Any thoughts you want to add to this? Any, any, anything that you, you're seeing here? All right, verse 7. And when they shall have finished their testimony, the beast uh, the, uh, that ascendeth out of the bottomless pit shall make war against them and shall overcome them and kill them. And their bodies shall lie in the street of the great city, which spiritually is called Sodom and Egypt, where also our Lord was crucified. Now, where, where was the city? What is this city? Quite obvious, right? This is a literal reference to Jerusalem. And they of the people and kindreds and tongues and nations shall see their dead bodies three days and a half and shall not suffer their dead bodies to be put in the graves. Just pause there. Uh, this is the first mention in verse 7 of the beast in the book of Revelation. Many commentators believe that this is Satan. I think that this is the Antichrist. While, yes, there are Antichrists presently, the spirit of Antichrist is presently in this age. There will be yet a future man of sin, son of perdition, um, the, prince of, the prince to come, lowercase p, of Daniel chapter 9. Um, and what we would see here is, is that this is the Antichrist who is fueled by the power of Satan. This is not Satan. This is referring to who we will learn more about in later chapters of the book of Revelation. Um, but this is the prince to come, the man of sin, the son of perdition, um, a, a, a very deceptive individual. Um, there is something else that I would like to read to you at this point. Um, and I think this is rather significant in, in the sense that what, what we see taking place when wickedness uh, is judged by God. I think that it's very, it's very significant for us to see that, that God, through, the John, through John, the writer, in verse number 8, he refers to Jerusalem spiritually as what? Look at verse number 8. What does he call Jerusalem? Sodom. What took place in Sodom? That abomination of uh, sexual wickedness. Them working which is unseemly and against nature, man with man, woman with woman. But what about Egypt? Now, Sodom is ref referring to that wicked city that God destroyed for their sexual perversion. Egypt is a reference to sin, sinfulness, the sinful paganism of Egypt. But then he amplifies it even further, where also our Lord was crucified. The Lord of glory, the perfect Son of God, was crucified in this city. So he's pinpointing, he's pinpointing Jerusalem, but he's giving them spiritual attributes in the sense that they are sodomistic and they are sinful, and this is the place where Jesus was crucified. Now, I was recently, I saw, um, uh, you know, we have access to just about anything in the world right now. And, and they were having a gay pride event in the streets of Jerusalem. Um, and I was overwhelmingly amazed at how much homosexuality is paraded in Jerusalem, even now, even with the presence of Islam and Judaism being so prevalent there, uh, homosexuality is is still paraded as it is all around the world. And I find that it's very interesting that God refers to this city as Sodom and Egypt, even in the end times. 
And you're going to see that this is, that there's something, there's another factor to this that I would like to really point your attention to. Um, I know we're jumping back and forth between Daniel. If you don't want to go to Daniel chapter 11, I'll read this to you, but, but you should take note of this. Daniel chapter 11, uh, verse number 36. This, and I think you would agree with me that we're seeing homosexuality in, at present. We're seeing it uh, almost burn like wildfire. It is, it is, a, it is a sin that it, it is particularly wicked in the sense that it, it contaminates very quickly and it takes over regions it takes over the heart in a very, very wicked way. Um, and, and Daniel records something about this man of sin, this Antichrist, this son of perdition. In Daniel chapter 11, look at verse number 36. And the king, that's a lowercase k, shall do according to his will, and he shall exalt himself and magnify himself above every god, and shall speak marvelous things against the God of gods, and shall prosper till the indignation be accomplished, for that that is determined shall be done. I, I, I actually take great comfort in that verse, knowing that even what is going to be done is determined by God. But what I want to point your attention to is in verse 37. What is this king like? What is this antichrist like? What is this, uh, this man of sin? In verse 37 Neither shall he regard the God of his fathers, nor the desire of women, nor regard any God, for he shall magnify himself above all. So he's going to play the God. He's going to, he's going to seek worship. But it, the, the, the point I want to point out to you here is that he doesn't want women. This is a man who is possibly a homosexual, possibly a eunuch of some kind. This world leader who is going to deceive so many. Um, is more than likely a homosexual. Now, when we see this sin taking off uh, in our time, it's really not surprising to think that this, this, as it is taking over the globe openly, it's not surprising to think that it's going to go even further. And, and I don't, you know, maybe you're not aware of this, but when preachers confront the issue of homosexuality, usually it is met with great violence. And it's a particular sin that, that strikes great violence. Usually in the area of, they say, who are you to tell me who I can love? And, and it, it really lights the fire um, in, in this wickedness. And it's no surprise that these two witnesses preach for three and a half years, and then they're killed. Um, if this homosexual sodomistic, as it's referenced in verse 8, is, is, really, is really prevalent in this time, at, in, in the latter portions of um, the tribulation period. Now, um, obviously this is referring to Jerusalem here by John. And uh, they leave their bodies in the street. They leave their dead bodies to lay for three and a half days, totally humiliating, uh, this is the pinnacle of debauchery. This is absolute wickedness, completely shameful. Absolutely no dignity whatsoever to leave two dead bodies in the street for all the world to see. And not only that, not only do they leave these individuals lying in the street, they give gifts to one another. Now, have you, as I have been in the grocery store and I pick up a Christmas card, have you ever come across a Christmas card that reads, and they that dwell upon the earth shall rejoice over them and make merry and, send, and shall send gifts one to another. Revelation chapter 11, verse 10. Have you ever found one that says that? I had the unfortunate privilege of picking up a Christmas card that referenced Revelation chapter 11, verse 10, and I thought to myself, they have no idea what they're talking about. What they did was they Googled the word gift and they found a gift, a verse that said, hey, that looks cool. Let's put that in there. Well, unfortunately, you're referring to two of the witnesses, the, the two witnesses in Revelation who were killed by the Antichrist and uh, the wicked members of the, uh, of the world who were uh, seeking to destroy all those who would stand for righteousness. So it is, do not put on your next family Christmas card, Revelation chapter 11, verse 10. That's just a, re, that's a recommendation. Uh, please don't do that. Because these two prophets tormented them. Like I said, when you, when you put the finger on the live nerve of sin, you can expect to get some backlash. 
when you put your finger on, on, and we have many churches today that say, no, 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 no. Don't talk about sin. Don't talk about hell. Don't pressure anybody into conviction or guilt because that's just not good. Uh, you know, I'm sorry, but if you're hearing the gospel and it's not convicting, it's not the gospel. Um, the, the gospel needs to convict. The truth needs to convict. It needs to root through you and, and, and it needs to do its work. That's what happens um, when we hear this gospel. Um, so verse number 11, and after three days, this is amazing. Um, after three days, verse 11 of Revelation chapter 11, three and a half days, the spirit of life from God entered into them and they stood up on their feet. And as I think it should, great fear fell upon them which saw them. So here are these two bloated, stiff bodies laying in the streets of Jerusalem, and up they walk. They get up. The whole world is going to see this. It's going to go viral. Uh, like I said, we live in an age where uh, images are, I mean, they are spread very quickly. They refer to it as, as going viral. These things are going to be all around the world in a minute, in an instant. And uh, as these two dead bodies, these two men stand up and great fear, rightly so, should fall upon all that saw them in verse 12. And they heard a great voice from heaven saying unto them, come up hither or come up. And they ascended up to heaven in a cloud just as Jesus ascended and their enemies beheld them. Now, I've heard commentators say that this took place in an instant. Uh, in a sense, this is like a rapture after the rapture. Um, this is uh, quite clearly these two men are just vacuumed up into heaven at the command of this voice, uh, this voice of God. And then what ensues after these two witnesses rise from the dead and then are caught up to heaven. In verse 13, the same hour was there a great earthquake, a tenth of the city fell and the earthquake killed 7,000 men. It's quite, quite a accurate statement and the remnant were affrighted and gave glory to the God of heaven now this is not a salvific giving glory 7,000 men fall in Jerusalem dead this earthquake shakes the earth um, but in the, the original construct of this sentence here that they gave glory to God in heaven it doesn't necessarily mean that they were saved and they gave God glory through faith in Jesus Christ this simply means that they saw the wall fall they saw these people die and they said whoa this is uh, God it wasn't a salvific praise um, in a sense. But if you recall what has been mentioned in chapters 9, uh, at the closing of the sixth trumpet, then we see that eagle was flying around and there were three woes remaining and he was flying around saying, whoa, 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 yet three woes, three trumpets are still remaining. And in verse 14, the second woe is passed and behold, the third woe comes quickly. Now guys, this is what's really, really, this was what set my study time off this afternoon. And and I hope that just in all that we've discussed in this portion of Scripture, you can taste a piece of this. After these two witnesses are killed, they lie in the streets, and then they're caught up to heaven. We are hours away at this point, hours away from the return of Christ. This is to give you a time frame of, of, in reference of what's going on here as the book of Revelation is transpiring. We are hours away from the return of Christ. This is the end of time. This is, this is the end that we're seeing here. And the seventh angel sounds. So just to give you a perspective, the seventh angel has sounded at verse 15. There have been, remember, seven seals, followed by seven trumpets, and there are yet seven bowls. Those bold judgments will come in rapid fire succession in the next several hours, of, uh, which, which transpires over chapters 12 through 18 of the book of Revelation. Um, but those bold judgments will come in rapid fire succession. The seventh angel sounds in verse 15, and there, was, uh, there, were, gr there were great voices in heaven. In, in other words, there was a symphony that erupted. Okay? Okay. You know, we just went through Revelation chapter 11. We're going through Daniel and Ezekiel and all these references that John makes through Zechariah. And then the seventh trumpet sounds and a symphony erupts. It's coming to an end. It, 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 the time is up. 
the symphony of angels were great voices in heaven saying the kingdoms, listen to this, the kingdoms of this world are become the kingdoms of our Lord and of his Christ and he shall reign forever and ever. Is that not the sweetest thing you've ever heard? All of these goofy governments that are out there today that people squabble and go crazy for, they're all nothing. King Jesus will reign forever and ever. This is the heartbeat of Revelation chapter 11, if not the heartbeat of the entire book of Revelation. Jesus Christ the Lord will reign forever and ever. There's no sweeter truth I know than that right there. He will reign forever. So what's happening? The symphony erupts and the kingdoms of this world, man's kingdoms, how pathetic are they? How silly are they? Man thinks that he can legislate all of his problems away. Uh, look, look, guys. Um, well, I'm, I'm getting ahead of myself. So let's, let's read this. Verse 16, and the four and 20 elders which sat before God on their seats fell upon their faces and worshiped God. Every time the four and 20 elders are mentioned, they are falling on their faces and worshiping God. All throughout the book of Revelation, these four and 20 elders representative of the church who have been raptured, they are worshiping God saying, we give thee thanks, O Lord God Almighty, which art and wast and art to come because thou hast taken to thee thy great power and hast reigned. This is the end of the end of time. And the nations were angry and thy wrath is come in the time of the dead that they should be judged and that thou shouldest give reward unto thy servants, the prophets and to the saints and them that fear thy name shall small and great and shouldest destroy them which destroy the earth. Pause there. We're going to, we're going to hit verse 19 by itself. This is the seventh trumpet blast and worship ensues. All the governments of this world are in chaos and rebellion against God while Christ is seated on his throne. Presently, the inauguration of his earthly millennial kingdom is about to transpire at these moments here. We are hours away from the return of Christ. Jesus Christ is King and Lord of all. That is what we take away from Revelation chapter 11. The final seven bold judgments are going to come in rapid fire succession. This is an eruption of voices and a symphony praising the Lord Jesus Christ. And then in verse number 19, we see this heavenly ark of the covenant. Look at verse number 19. And the temple of God was opened in heaven. God literally pulls back the walls of heaven. And people are given this opportunity to see in his temple the ark of his covenant. And there were lightnings and voices and thunderings and an earthquake and great hail. This is, this is explosive glory. God is saying that from the moment I spoke creation into existence, there has never been another moment like when he pulls back the wall of the temple in heaven. It is all coming to an end. He pulls back the openings of heaven and there is the heavenly mercy seat. Do you remember the Ark of the Covenant in the Old Testament where Moses was commanded to build this ark, this little box, and on the top was the mercy seat and the cherubim were there facing each other with the wings and the, the priests were not allowed to touch that. And, and on the Day of Atonement, the priests would come in and put the blood on the mercy seat. Well, whenever Christ made his atoning sacrifice, he went straight to heaven and placed the blood on the heavenly mercy seat. There is, there is, it's, it's done, guys. We have forgiveness of sin because of what Jesus did, entering into heaven's temple, placing his perfect atonement into heaven's mercy seat, onto heaven's mercy seat. It's done. And what God tells us here is you've, you've seen the beginning of time whenever he spoke the worlds into existence. And here in verse number 19, he says it's done. This is, he pulls back the sides of heaven and you can, these people saw into the temple of heaven, the heavenly ark of the covenant. Remember in the Old Testament, there was all this earthly reference. The temple, the tabernacle was an earthly reference of the holy of holies and the, and the picture of heaven. There was the ark that was in that tabernacle. It was representative of what was going on in heaven. That was the heavenly glories of these things. We have a world minute over. Hang in there. Let me give you some application. Okay. Can you, can you hang in there or is your brain sweating a little bit? We covered a lot. As Crystal would say, did I just like give you the whole fire hose of Revelation chapter 11? All right, here's some points of application. Number one, I'm going to give you four points real quick, okay? 
What do we learn from Revelation chapter 1? As if it isn't glorious enough, we don't walk away from here saying that all the kingdoms of the earth are the Lord's and he will reign forever. That's probably the glorious truth of this whole thing. But number one, the church is called to hold the measuring rod against the world. Right out of the gate in Revelation chapter 11, we see John is holding the measuring rod. What's the measuring rod? What is it? The reed, yeah, he's, he's, John holds the reed. He's, he's holding up the, the, the command of God, the, the divine standard. In other words, that rod represents the Lord Jesus Christ. And as he measures, the church is meant to hold the gospel up against the world and say, look, you can't measure up, but here's the truth. Christ has measured up. He will measure up, and he's the one that you find forgiveness in. So, so the church is meant, we have been called to do that in the time in which we live. There's so much more we could say about that. Number two, simply put, believers are the light of the world. Believers are the light of the world. Uh, these two witnesses, these two preachers, they were preaching the gospel until death. Uh, that's what also we have been called to do. Number three, and this is pertaining to the great and dreadful, never to be spoken from any pulpit in the world, theme, Christians, and politics. Number three, like oil and water, Christians are called to influence the world around you in whatever way possible for the glory of Christ. Does this mean that Christians should never get into politics? No, that, you know, that's, that's well and good. There's many Christians who are in politics. But a Christian knows that politics is never the answer to man's problem. Government is never the answer to the real problem. In many ways, it's just this crummy band-aid that, that fails. The real answer is found only in Jesus Christ. And there is a time coming when he will reign in an earthly kingdom when all this goofiness is gone. And number four, Christ is the answer and there is a kingdom coming. Have you ever thought about what Jesus commanded his disciples when they said, Lord, teach us to pray? What, 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 what's the, we, and we learned this from a kid. So since we're little kids, we learned the, the Lord's Prayer. Our Father, which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come. And we just chunk right through that repetitious prayer. We don't think anything about it. But, but in that prayer that Jesus said, he said, you should be praying, uh, Our Father, which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come. Have you prayed that way? Have you said, Lord, your kingdom come now according to your plan and purpose? That's a reference, by the way, is Matthew chapter 6, verse 9. Carl, were you raising your hand? I'm sorry. Did you raise your hand? No, I was biting my nose. 